So we are winding down uh, our semester on biblical themes. We've been walking through all these different themes of the Bible to see over and over and over again how the Bible is one story that's ultimately about Jesus, that's ultimately about God's Son. It's not a roadmap to life. It's not just a set of morals that helps you live properly or all the, all the things you see on the billboards when you're driving through kind of small towns in the south. Uh, it is a story that ultimately exalts Jesus Christ and that reality that God is about him, that the Bible is about him is what actually lets us live the way we were meant to live. Our lives go better. We are happier when we are not the point, when Jesus is the point. And so we've tried to just saturate ourselves over and over and over again by looking at these themes that scream that at us, that Jesus is the king of the kingdom, that Jesus is the one that inaugurates the true covenant, that Jesus is the ultimate uh, crux of the day of the Lord, as we looked at last week, that he's the ultimate uh, center of themes like authority and submission, or even themes like food in the scriptures ultimately find their meaning in Jesus. And today, as we kind of wind down, we've got a couple teachings left throughout the month of June, then we'll take a break in July. We're going to look at... Uh, a massive theme of the Bible, a theme that if you don't understand it, you will not understand the salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of sacrifice, the theme of atonement, the theme of uh, Jesus dying in our place. If we miss this, salvation will not make sense. If we miss the theme of sacrifice, we are left with, he's just a good example to follow. And you can wear what would Jesus do bracelet, but all you've got is try to be good like Jesus. But if you see this theme, then everything else will fall into place. Jesus lives the life that we should have lived but couldn't and dies the death that we should have died but don't. Also that we might receive his righteousness, that our sins might be pardoned, that we might, uh, as those kicked out of the garden, sprint back in, knowing that the angel with the fiery sword turning every which way has been removed because that sword has come down on him and we can joyfully sprint back into the Father's presence. All of that, all of those wonderful realities that we call Christianity hinges on understanding this idea of Sacrifice, And so what I want to do, I'll go through kind of the garden. We'll start in the garden like we usually do and show the need for sacrifice. Why does this theme even show up? I'll walk through the Old Testament showing primarily these big sacrifice stories that we have throughout uh, Abraham and Isaac. The Passover lamb in the Exodus, the day of the atonement in Leviticus. And then we'll look at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and how they all point to this and kind of unveil this theme of sacrifice. And then we'll get to Jesus as our true sacrifice and see what are the results of his sacrifice. So let's start in the garden where we often do. And we see kind of the first hint of the sacrifice. So uh, as you know, if you've been coming, uh, God creates everything. In the beginning, there was God and nothing else. And God speaks creation into being. And as he makes the entire universe, he takes Adam and Eve and puts them in this garden paradise where they are to dwell with God. They walk with God in the cool of the day. They find their life in him. There's no sin. There's no death. There's only life. There's no guilt. There's 
innocence. They're, they're naked and unashamed, right? They have no concept of guilt or anything like that. Living forever in the Lord's presence. And then as we see every week, Genesis 3, the serpent comes and tempts them to doubt God's character. They listen to the serpent, unfortunately, and they sin. They rebel. They eat the bite of the fruit. And all of a sudden, their state before God, where they were once dwelling in his presence, dwelling in life with no guilt, all of a sudden, that gets turned on its head and they are flooded with guilt. The first result, as the fruit is still being turned over in their mouths, they become aware that they're naked. They're instantly flooded with shame and guilt. That's the first result. Next, we see the realities that God had promised. If you rebel, you will surely die. That becomes a reality. Death that didn't exist in God's creation now floods into his creation. And worst of all, they're sent out of the garden. They're sent away from his presence. He can't dwell with God anymore. Man has now become sinful and they cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. They lose their communion with God. They lose their fellowship with God. And fourthly, by consequence, they're now enslaved. They're ruled by the serpent. They're by nature children of wrath. They're enslaved to sin. So these three main things, death is now reality. They've sinned, and so now the wages of sin, the payment for their rebellion, is death. God mercifully doesn't kill them instantly as he could have. But death is now a reality. They now are kicked out of the Lord's presence, the most heartbreaking of the realities, and now they're actually enslaved to this sin. The the very thing that they thought would make them like God has actually enslaved them. And so that's now the state before God. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of this tragedy of tragedies, we see a kind of hint of a first sacrifice. So Adam and Eve realize that they're naked. What's the first thing they do? They try to cover their shame. So they get some leaves and kind of make some sort of pathetic clothes to cover their own shame as they're hiding from God. And God mercifully, uh, as he's sending them out of the garden, we see this first sacrifice. It's, it's somewhat hidden, but look there in Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord made for Adam and his wife, Eve, garments of skin and clothed them. So they're naked and unashamed. They sin. They realize that they're naked. They're incredibly filled with shame. They make leaves themselves to try and cover it. And God, as they're being sent out of the garden, makes them garments of skin and clothe them. So it's, it's not as explicit. You don't necessarily see the scene of God killing an animal, but something has to die in order for them to be clothed. Something in order for their pathetic leaves to be taken away, but their shame and guilt to be covered, something has to die. And it's not Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve should have died. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. God in his mercy doesn't kill them instantly, but Instead, something else dies so that their guilt might be covered. So you begin to see, even in this background, this kind of hint of something will die in the place of the sinner in order to cover their guilt. In order to cover their guilt. So it's kind of like the first seed of this theme. But as the Bible continues, we see the very next big story that's going to develop this theme is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, God commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac. So that story, when you read it, you know, we get a little nervous, not just because, is this 
child sacrifice, right? That's the, the, the red flags that fly up in our mind. But what God has done is he's promised, you got kicked out of the garden, here's how I'm gonna redeem you through Abraham's family. He calls Abraham completely by his grace, makes a covenant with him. I'll be your God. You and your family will be my people. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here's the problem. Abraham and Sarah are old and have no offspring. And so they wait and they wait and they wait for this promise. And then finally the miracle comes after a couple false starts from Abraham and Sarah trying to take it into their own hands. And Isaac is born and here's the son that God is going to redeem the whole world through, through my offspring. And then God, curiously to Abraham, says this in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. So notice there, it's a test. God doesn't actually want child sacrifice, but he's testing. Does Abraham, who has doubted God's goodness and taken Hagar to be his own wife, we get Ishmael and trying to do it in man's means, is he gonna actually trust on my promises? And God tells him, take your son, your only son, the promised son, the one from whom the whole world is going to be redeemed, the son of the covenant, and offer him to me, on the, land, on the hill of Moriah, and Abraham responds in faith. And we see this story play out here in Genesis 22. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, altar there and laid the wood in, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham responds in faith. I don't have it for you in their notes, but as Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain, Isaac asks, where's the ram for the offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide it. And God Notice what happens. God stops him and then provides a substitute sacrifice. Instead of Isaac, a ram is killed. So we begin to see this theme of A, God is going to provide a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is going to take the place of man. What was kind of hinted at in the garden is made a bit more vivid here with Abraham and Isaac. The story goes on into the book of Exodus. The next big sacrifice that we see as we've now seen this almost kind of curious story of Abraham and Isaac. But we know, okay, God's going to provide the ram. He's going to step in our place. The next thing we see is 
the Passover lamb in the story of the Exodus. So if you know the book of Exodus, Israel has become this great nation. They've immigrated to Egypt at the end of Genesis because there's a famine and there's food that God has provided for them in Egypt. And then generations continue and they are enslaved. The Pharaoh reacts in fear, thinks if someone attacks us, this nation of the Hebrews is now so big, they might turn against us. So they enslave them and they cry out to God. God hears them and God sends Moses and Aaron to begin to uh, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and God begins to send plagues on the nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And God shows very clearly, Pharaoh is not God. All of your so-called false gods in Egypt are not God. I am the one true God. Let my people go. And then we get to the final plague. And the final plague is that every firstborn is going to die. God is going to sweep through the land and every firstborn is going to die. Notice, in this final plague, Israel is not exempt. When the darkness comes, it only falls over the land of Egypt, but there's light in Israel. When the flies come, they only swarm in the lands of Egypt, but not in Israel. But in this final plague, Israel and Egypt are lumped together. But Israel are told there is a way to be rescued. There is a way to be spared from this terrifying wrath of God. Here's what you can do. You can take a ram, a lamb, a spotless lamb, and kill it, and take its blood, and paint it on your doorpost. And when the wrath of God pours through the streets, and it sees the blood on your doorposts, it will pass over you, and your firstborn will not die. Notice what the book of Exodus is showing us. Israel's biggest problem. Sam Amadi, who's an author and biblical scholar, pointed this out. Israel's biggest problem is not that they are slaves in Egypt. Their biggest problem is that they're children of Adam. They're sinners. And they need to be spared from wrath just as much as the Egyptians do. They deserve God's judgment just as much as the Egyptians do. And what they need here is a sacrifice for their sin. So when the wrath of God pours through the streets, every human, Egyptian or Hebrew, deserves death for the rebellion against a holy God. God will see the blood painted on the doorpost and say, a death has already occurred for this home. The debt has been paid for this home, and he will pass over. Look at Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So blood is the sign of, that's, that's where the life is. So when God sees the blood, he says a life has already been taken. A, life, a death penalty has already been paid. A debt for sin has already been paid over this home because a lamb has died in the place of the firstborn. So we see in this scene three kind of key elements for the unfolding 
of this theme for understanding sacrifice, one, you see payment for sin. It's not as explicit in the story of Abraham and Isaac, but here it's, it's much more clear. There's payment for sin. Israel's biggest problem, humanity's biggest problem, isn't their bad circumstances, isn't our bad circumstances. Our biggest problem is Adam is our father, and we like him sin, and we like him want to be like God, and we like him want to take God off the throne and sit in his place, and we want to decide what is good and what is evil. We do not want him to tell us what is good and what is evil. That's all of us. That's our biggest problem. And because of that unthinkable rebellion, as we breathe God's air, we deserve death. The wages of our sin is death. And so if we're not going to die, we need something to die in our place. Notice this wasn't man's idea. Notice Moses didn't go to God and say, I have a proposition for you. Uh, Why don't you, you we can take an animal and it can die for us. This is God's initiative. God provides the lamb. God is the one who tells them a way that sin could be paid for a penalty paid for, something dying in your place as your substitute rather than you, the lamb. That's the first thing, a payment for sin. Second thing, a deliverance from enemies. Sacrifice is going to be the means by which Israel exit, have their exodus. They leave slavery. They will be delivered through Sacrifice, And then number three is somewhat hinted at. Jim Hamilton, another biblical scholar, points this out. Uh, they are leaving this place of slavery to, in a sense, return to the presence of God. So they're leaving the slavery of Egypt to go to the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, this land where God's going to give them rest from all their enemies and their crops are going to grow and there's going to be fellowship with God as he has his temple in the center of the country. And so there's meant to be this like Eden-like place where I will be your God and you will be my people as I bring you into covenant with myself. So there's these hints at returning to dwelling with God, We're beginning to see, if you want to say it this way, the reversal of the fall being implemented. If the payment of death, enslavement to our enemies, and being kicked out of God's presence are the payment of Genesis 3, the problem of Genesis 3, we begin to see through sacrifice, death can be paid for, we can be freed from our enemies, and we can enter into, in some sense, the presence of the Lord. So we see those developed in the Passover meal. One more thing. I want to mention, as God is instituting this this meal of the Passover, he's not just saying, do this one-time thing in Egypt, you'll get out, and then we'll, you know, party in the promised land. He's saying, do this every year. We're going to do this the first time as we get delivered, but then we're going to establish this as a continual feast of remembrance every year to have the Passover meal. And there's this sense in which as they, they kill the lamb, paint the blood on the doorpost, then they eat of the land. They have this meal together. There's this sense in which they're identifying with the death. This was the death. My blood should be the one painted on this doorpost, but instead it is the lamb's blood. Keep that in mind when we talk about the Lord's Supper towards the end of this teaching. But there's this continual celebration. Israel, very close to Israel's identity as a nation is this idea of sacrifice. God delivered us from our enemies through the sacrificial lamb. And it's something they were meant to celebrate continually because it shows them who their God is.
Next we see Israel is delivered through this Passover lamb. The theme is beginning to be developed. And then they get, we get to uh, Leviticus, everybody's favorite book, right, in the scriptures. Anybody not make it through it in their Bible reading plan? You're like, all right, Psalms. Right? And this is, I barely made it through setting up the temple in the end of Exodus. Leviticus, kill a turtle dove? Come on, right? Okay, Psalms. Let's be honest. And so we, we, the, whole, the whole point of that book is answering the question, the most important question of your life. How can sinful man dwell with a holy God? How can a sinful man dwell with a holy God and not die? If God is infinitely holy and we are rebels against him, how can, we, how can he be our God and we be his people if there's that rebellion problem, if we've been kicked out of the garden. And so what we see in Leviticus is a sacrificial system set up so that man can have continual sacrifice made for his sin, that sins can be continually paid for, that guilt can be continually covered. And right at the center of Leviticus and really right at the center of the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible is Leviticus 16, which is called the Day of Atonement the center of answering this question, how can a holy man dwell with a sinful people? We get this long chapter in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, where we see once a year, God's presence will descend into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. There was a holy place that the priest could go in and there was a thick veil. And on the other side is the Holy of Holies that no one could go in except the high priest once a year for this very day. So God's presence descends and sits on the mercy seat. And we see the high priest Aaron and those after him take two goats. And one goat is meant to be for a sin offering for the people. And the other is uh, what's often called a scapegoat. is going to be sent out into the wilderness. So first, sacrificial goat Aaron, the high priest, is meant to take the goat into the Holy of Holies. So once a year into the very presence of God, tradition tells us that they would tie a rope around their ankle in case they died, they could be pulled out without someone having to go in them and them die and then go in them and them die. And, right? So go into the Holy of Holies, into the place of the glory of God after they've made sacrifices for themselves so they can even enter God's presence and they take the goat and they kill it and they spill its blood on the mercy seat as a sacrificial offering for the sins of the whole nation. The high priest, by the way, had to stir up and, and put incense so that there was a big cloud of incense so that he might not accidentally see the glory of God and die. You see God's face, you die. Even Moses asks, show me your glory. And God says, no, you can't see my face and live. And so there's even a big cloud of incense to prevent the accidental looking upon God's glory and dying. But the high priest would take the goat and kill it and bring its blood over to the mercy seat and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a sacrifice for the people of Israel, as a sacrifice for their sin. Israel deserves to die but this goat is going to die in their place. And as this goat is killed and a sacrifice for them, their sins are atoned for. Their sins are paid for by this goat. That's the first goat. Second goat is what's often called the scapegoat. We see the high priest is meant to go out to the second goat, put both his hands on the goat, confess all the sins of Israel onto this goat and send the goat out into the wilderness. This idea of the goat is going to bear the sins of the people. 
and then be sent away, physically remove their sin as it goes into the wilderness. And then that's all we're told. The idea is that would be it would walk away. But this idea of the sins not just being sacrificed and paid for, but the sins being born and physically removed from the people. And what Leviticus is showing is you need both. If you want to enter into the presence of a holy God as a sinner and not die, you need a sacrifice, a payment for your sin, and you need your sins removed. You need your sins taken as far as the east is from the west. So notice those two things, the the goat offering stitched into the thick veil that kept you out of the holy of holies was the cherubim with the flaming sword. As God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he puts the cherubim, the angel with a flaming sword, guarding the way to God's presence and stitched into the thick veil is that same cherubim. And so there's this idea that the the goat going in and being sacrificed, that sword is coming down and killing the goat in the place of Israel so that God's judgment might be fulfilled, can be poured out on that goat. And the second, the penalty, that's the penalty of sin, if you want to think about it that way. And then second, the presence of sin is removed from them. But you need both to dwell in God's presence. So this day of atonement is meant to be a resolution to that question. How can sinful man dwell in the presence of God? The day of atonement is a partial answer to that question. Again, it's the center of the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But sacrifice, you see there, sacrifice is right at the theme of redemption. God isn't just going to say, you know what, I've gotten over it and we're cool now. God is going to say, you deserve death and I'm a perfectly just God. And so here's how I'm going to stay just and be merciful. Something else is going to die in your place. Sacrifice is right at the center of redemption. But one of the things we see as we see all these beautiful pictures of sacrifice, we see all throughout the Old Testament, it is insufficient. So we see, you know, their sins are meant to be paid for, they're delivered from their enemies, and they're meant to dwell with God. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see all that's just partial. It's almost like it's a shadow, which we'll come back to in Hebrews when we get there. But they're, they're, they're insufficient. We see, yes, their sins are being paid for, but that can only really push back God's wrath, it's a temporary pardon. If you want to think about it that way, it's not all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. They need to keep making sacrifices. Hebrews 10 will tell us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the best that Leviticus is doing is pushing back wrath. It's not removing their sin once and for all. We know this because Israel continues to rebel. In fact, they offer uh, terrible sacrifices and they offer sacrifices to false gods. And, and we, we begin to see as, as we get to the prophets, what's needed isn't just more sacrifices. What's needed is a heart change. David, as he has his affair with Bathsheba and is caught in his sin in Psalm 51, cries out in prayers to God and says, if you delighted in sacrifice, I would give it. But you don't. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. All of this killing of the animals is meant to point to the real need, which is sins forgiven forever and hearts of stone being turned to hearts of flesh. Leviticus doesn't do that. 
We need our sins removed, not just from the camp, but from our hearts. So they're delivered, so sins are only partially paid for. They're delivered from the enemies, Egypt, but they're not delivered from their ultimate enemies, which are very clearly sin, death, the devil, the serpent that they're still listening to. We need deliverance, not just from Egypt, but from our ultimate enemies. And they're in God's presence, yes. The, the Israel's camp camped around the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. But notice how different it is from walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. They can't even look at him and survive. The high priest needs to put so much incense that it blinds him to the presence of God. Moses, God's man in the Old Testament says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, I'll pass by you and declare my name, but you cannot see my face and live. So they're, in, they're dwelling with God, but it's not, surely it's, there, there's more communion than what Israel is experiencing and fellowship with God than what Israel is experiencing. So we see even with this Old Testament, all these sacrifices, they are insufficient. They leave us longing. We need a sacrifice that is permanent. We need something that can take away God's wrath forever. We need something that declares that we're no longer rebels, that we've actually been made innocent now and forever. And we need deliverance from the ultimate enemy in a way where we can be truly brought back to the garden. We can be truly brought back to God. And as the Old Testament continues to unfold in the prophets, particularly Isaiah, we see God has those plans. God's plans are not ultimately going to be through animal sacrifice, but through a Messiah, through a Savior, who, as we see in Isaiah 53, is going to be the Lord's servant. He's going to be a suffering servant, and he's going to suffer by being sacrificed for us. The ultimate sacrifice. Isaiah 53. Look at this. So with all the background that we have, all the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac, Leviticus, Passover lamb, keep that in your mind and let just hear these words. Let me just read these words over you, pointing to this Messiah that's going to come and how is he going to redeem wicked man? How is he going to bring us back to the garden? Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. As he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore I will divide him a portion with many and he shall divide spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and numbered with the and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors So as we have seen all throughout the Old Testament up to this point, the way God is going to bring his people back, the way God is going to redeem his people is through sacrifice. Here we are told of the sacrifice, the one that won't just push back wrath but will pay for it. The one that won't just make us not guilty anymore, but will make us accounted righteous. The one that won't just take sin out of the camp, but will actually take it out of our heart. By his wounds we will be healed. As the high priest puts his hand on the scapegoat and confesses the sins of Israel so that it will bear it and take it away. This servant, this Messiah, all of your sins will be confessed unto him and he will take them away. He will bear your sins. Not in a way where we still have all these problems. God will see and be satisfied. Judgment will not just be temporarily kicked down the road. There will be no more condemnation after this servant pays for sin in your place as the ultimate sacrifice. And so the question that should be boiling in our hearts is, Who is this man that will ultimately solve our sin problem? And the answer is the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth whenever he sees Jesus walking up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see how John the Baptist isn't just saying, what's another nice title we could give Jesus? John the Baptist knows the hopes that have been burning in our hearts since Genesis 3 are answered in this man who will deliver us by being a lamb who is sacrificed so that our sins might actually be taken away. And we see throughout Jesus' life, he lives the perfect life. He is the perfect spotless lamb. He does no violence. No deceit is found in his mouth. He's the ultimate spotless lamb. And on the cross, 
he gives the ultimate sacrifice. He is the true ram who steps into the place of Isaac, the true ram who's provided by God that dies our death, dies the death we should have died, he dies on the cross. As Tim Keller said, uh, pointing this out, says, in the same way that Abraham said, or God says to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now we can say to God, now I know you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Jesus is the true ram caught in the thicket, sacrificed in our place. He's the true Passover lamb as the wrath of God sweeps up to your door. And you're standing on the other side, a rebel, a guilty rebel, deserving of an infinite punishment in hell. God stops and he sees the blood of his son painted on your doorpost. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he passes over. He's the true Passover lamb who is killed in our place. He's the true Passover lamb who delivers us from our enemies, not just our temporary circumstances, but actually sets us free from sin, death, and the devil. He's the true scapegoat. Our our sins are confessed unto him and he carries them away from us, removing our sins forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's the true goat offered in the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement. Jesus is both, Hebrews brings this out in Hebrews 9, he's both the high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies, goes into the presence of God, the only one who's spotless and stainless, who can go into the presence of God. And instead of offering a goat, he offers himself. And he pours his blood on the mercy seat as an offering for us. Hebrews 9 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not just a yearly redemption needing to be repeated every year on the Day of Atonement, but securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That sword guarding the garden that was stitched into the thick veil preventing anyone from coming into the presence of God falls ultimately on God's son. And his blood is taken in and eternally atoned for so that we see right after The cross in Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that now 
the wrath of God has been satisfied, the sword has come down and you can enter in. You can go boldly, as Hebrews 10 tells us, into the presence of your father, knowing that the veil has been torn, the wrath has been satisfied, and you not only have been washed clean, but have been adopted as a child. And so now can joyfully flee into the presence of God, not expecting wrath, but expecting love and acceptance as someone who has been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. In the same way, or in in the opposite way rather, the high priest put incense to prevent him from seeing God's glory. You and I, when his blood has been poured out for us, can behold with unveiled faces the wonderful glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We get what Moses was asking for and denied, to see the face of God in the face of his son. And this sacrifice of Jesus isn't just a yearly thing, it's a sacrifice once and for all. We see that in Hebrews 10. His blood is sufficient to heal us and pay for our sins forever. So we see uh, next as the church, as the people of God, what does this mean for us? What are kind of the results of Jesus being the perfect sacrifice and us coming to him and pleading that we might be washed in the blood? By the way, if you ever think about those songs that we sing, I always think like if an unbeliever comes in here and they just hear us screaming, you know, we're washed in the blood. It's just a weird thing. If you don't think about this, the only way to actually be made white as snow is to be washed with the blood of the Son. And that is exactly what the scriptures say he's done for his church, his people, his disciples that have come to him. Their death has been paid for. There is therefore now no condemnation. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner that he's waiting to bring his wrath on. He sees someone whose debt has been paid. The cup of wrath that we saw from the Lord's day has been emptied on his son. The sacrificial lamb has been slain for you so that when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son. He sees you covered in the sacrifice of his wonderful son. I've got a lot of verses there for you that we don't have time to read. But that first problem, we have sin that must be paid for. The wages of sin is death. We have a death that has taken place that is sufficient to pay that debt. We've been set free from our enemies. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Death doesn't have sting anymore. As we die, we know we'll one day be raised. He's freed us from our ultimate enemies and then ultimately we can dwell with our God. Now in faith and soon by sight when the Lord returns or we go home to be with him. He solves all three of those issues. And then two more things before we move on to eternity. We, every week, we'll do this today. We partake of the kind of the meal of the church. And what is that? It's the ultimate Passover meal. In the same way, Israel ate of the lamb and they were identifying with the death that had just taken place. Their death, that they should have died and the lamb just died on their place or in their place. We, every week, as we take of the body and the blood of Jesus, are identifying This is my death that I should have died. And he died it for me. We celebrate the ultimate Passover every single week. And then lastly, what should we do? How are we supposed to live? Are we just supposed to be grateful as a result of this? Absolutely. 
But not only that, Paul says, your lives as a result of this sacrifice, as a result of this redemption that you have in him from the Passover lamb being slain. Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because his blood has been shed for you, bringing you life, bringing you eternity with him, we respond by pouring out our lives for him because that's the only way where, where true life is. Our bodies are living sacrifices. And then finally we see, pointing towards eternity, the ultimate victory. The final victory is going to come through the slain lamb. You might think Christ dies and then that's kind of his way to trick the devil and ha-ha, you know, the resurrection happened and now I've disarmed you. But when we get to Revelation, it's just going to be yoked, you know, creatine CrossFit Jesus destroying everybody. Is that how Revelation describes Jesus? I don't know. Let's look at Revelation 5. John looking as the end times are happening, winding down as the day of the Lord is coming. And he says this, then I saw... In the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written and on the back with seven seals. And I saw mighty angels proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I won't read the rest of it, but we see in the last day, we see a slain lamb conquering as a slain lamb, redeeming as a slain lamb and then worshiped as a slain lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain will be the cry of the nations. Let's just read it there, verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every tribe and tongue will sing that for all of eternity. And we see in Revelation 22, right at the end of the story, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and seated on the throne is God and at his right hand, the lamb who is slain. At the center, not just of the work of the cross, but the center of eternity is this sacrifice by your God and Savior, Jesus, who is a slain lamb who removes the uh, the three P's, the penalty of sin and paying for your death, the power of sin and breaking the chains of sin. And then we see here in eternity, he will ultimately finally remove the presence of sin. It will forever go away and we will be brought back to the garden in a sense and dwell with our God 
forever. So as we wrap up, what are a couple things, these are somewhat practical, uh, that how do, how do we respond to this? What are things that we should do? First of all, I just want to compel you, live in the freedom that has been bought for you by his blood. You can see someone. Someone does genuinely look otherworldly who believes their sins have been paid for and do believe that there's no condemnation for them. There is an otherworldly joy. There is a a peace that surpasses all understanding when they are not thinking, I've got to constantly kind of appease God. I didn't wake up in the third heaven and so he must be mad at me. When we are done with those kind of, I've got to earn God's favor mindsets and genuinely believe the lamb has been slain for me. I have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. That is yours in him. And so pray, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, just that the spirit would open your eyes, the eyes of your heart to that reality because you're meant to live in that freedom. You're meant to live in that sort of weightlessness, like Christian going on the pilgrimage to the celestial city. The burden is meant to roll off your back as you walk up to the foot of the cross and go into a pit and be lost forever. That is meant to be the life of the Christian, the difficult life of the Christian. They're suffering, but not from false condemnation. Live in that freedom. Live knowing that the power of sin has been broken that you are not enslaved. If you come to Christ, you are not enslaved to sin. You're now a slave to righteousness. And lastly, go boldly into the presence of God. What we do by faith, we will one day do by sight, going before him. But you go before him as a child now. You boldly enter the ripped curtain into the throne room now. You go bringing uh, prayers and supplications, not as a... I'm sorry, I know I've messed up, but maybe if, you, if you're having a good day, could you answer this prayer? You go as a child, knowing I've been washed clean to a father who is beckoning you to come. So just live in that freedom. And then the second thing I have is just live in such a way where your life could be characterized as you are presenting your body as a living sacrifice. You live knowing I've got 90 years, should the Lord be really gracious. And let's be honest, I imagine when you get towards that end, you're going to be like, can we wind this up, God? Right? You will reach a day if you keep living where you're like, I want this life to stop. We don't know if we have tomorrow, but you have such a blip, such a vapor of a life here. Please do not spend it being comfortable. Please do not spend it just trying to carve out nice circumstances where I've got, you know, everything I need and I don't have any problems. That day comes, but it's when you stop breathing. All your problems will go away when you see his wonderful face. In this life, this is meant to be a life of sacrifice. Why? Because the lamb that was slain is worthy. In your engagement with your neighbors who don't know him, who have all their debts paid for in him, sacrifice your comfort to perhaps enter into an awkward conversation. Sacrifice your reputation of being a weird Christian or something like that in evangelism. Maybe even genuinely begin to pray the big prayers of, does the Lord have big plans that might be leaving this place and going somewhere where not a lot of people know him, that I might declare his name came over time. I want to tell one story and then you come up and do, uh, Leo will come up and do questions. Uh, This theme 
uh, right when I became a Christian, there was a sermon I listened to 12,000 times uh, called Ten Shekels in a Shirt by Paris Reedhead, who's just an old, old missionary. And it's from the 60s, so it's all crackly, hurt your ears to listen to, but I just consumed it. I thought it was the only sermon in existence, apparently, for like a whole year. Uh, but he tells a story at the end uh, of the Moravians, who were in the 17th century, were a community of Germans during kind of the pietistic movement who... The Lord just did something in their community. They had a prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. And towards the beginning of it, there were two men, uh, one named uh, Johann Dober and the other David Nickman. I don't know, they're German. David and John. Uh, And they just felt compelled by the Lord. They heard of an island off in in the West Indies where a British atheist slave owner had 2,000, 3,000 slaves and he had declared, no one's ever going to come tell us about Jesus. Uh, You know, if a preacher gets shipwrecked here, I'll put him in my house, but then, you know, we're done with that gospel nonsense. And Paris Reedhead tells this story, by the way. Uh, And he, uh, these two 20-year-olds hear this and just are gripped by the reality that 3,000 slaves are on an island ruled by an atheist master. They will never hear the gospel. That is 3,000 souls who are destined for an eternity away from God. And they were so burdened by this that they wanted to go. But the only way that they could go is to sell themselves into slavery so that they might be a slave of this British owner. And that's exactly what they did. And as they were going to the ships, they, they sold themselves. They, the money they got for their own lives, they used to uh, pay their voyage to this island, St. Uh, Thomas, I believe it was. And their community, I mean, imagine if I did that, you guys would be like, okay, that's a little extreme. Can't you just stay here and preach? Their community is at the shores as the boat is sailing, and they're kind of like, I don't know if this is wise, and this is a bit of an extreme sacrifice. But they were convinced, and as they're sailing away, they stood arm in arm, and kind of the last thing that was ever heard from them, they yelled back, uh, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And that became the call of Moravian missions, and actually several young men followed in their footsteps to other islands that were in the exact same situation, and I think in a couple decades, 13,000 Slaves had been baptized and had come to know that a lamb was given for them and was slain for them. And they might have their sins pardoned by this atoning sacrifice and they might joyfully flee into the presence of God knowing that there has been a sacrifice for them. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, We love that every step of the way, this is your initiative. There is no man giving you a good idea. There is no, God, I know you're mad, but what about this? Uh, There's just you providing not just sacrifice, but your eternal son, the object of your affections you give so that we might have our life in him. He might die the death we should have died after living the life that we should have lived. And so I I just pray, Lord, that we would never lose that gratitude, that every day uh, we would wake up with this kind of renewed sense of the beauties of the gospel, and then it might genuinely affect how we live every day, 
how we parent our kids and how we talk to our neighbors and how we pour out our lives for one another in this building, that we might wash one another's feet and consider others better than ourselves because we have a Savior who came to be a servant, but not just a servant, but, but to be a sacrificed servant. And may we follow in his steps. Please help us do that, Lord, I pray in your son's name. Amen.